Hey, what's going on, friends? Welcome to the show. I am Corey Allen. You are you. And I hope that you're doing well. I hope that you're feeling all right today. And I'm just glad to be talking with you. Glad to be hanging out with you. Glad for us to be able to spend this time together. I have an awesome podcast for today with a fascinating topic I know you're going to love. My guest is Dr. Lisa Miller. Lisa is a New York Times bestselling author of The Spiritual Child, and she has a new book out called The Awakened Brain. She is a professor, researcher, and clinical psychologist, best known for her scholarly research on spirituality and psychology. So in her work, she has spent her life in the lab tracking how spirituality, not necessarily and often removed from religion, but a spiritual uh, inner life is related to a positive psychological well-being. So we get into all sorts of really fascinating stuff around that. And I know you're going to love this conversation. If you're feeling depressed, anxious, loneliness, any of those type of things, or just not quite feeling like yourself, low energy, feeling numb, and so on, BetterHelp can help you by connecting you with your own licensed professional therapist. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. They have a huge range of experts so they can hook you up with just the right person that you need to speak with. You can get private weekly video or phone sessions so that you can speak with your counselor in the comfort of your own home. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. You can go check out their website at betterhelp.com slash reviews to see some of the great things that BetterHelp users are saying. And right now, if you go to BetterHelp, that's betterhelp.com slash astral, you can join over the 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Once again, that's betterhelp.com slash astral to save 10% off your first month. All right, my friends, the time is now. Prepare yourself for a wonderfully delightful and insightful conversation with the great and wise Dr. Lisa Miller. I'm reflecting on recurring patterns in the universe and who comes to mind first for me always, of course, is Ansel Adams, that the crevice in the tree bark is structurally so very much like the Grand Canyon, that we see recurring patterns, you know, over and over again. Um, you know, of course, the the swirl of infinity. And that we, if you flush the toilet, it swirls just like a tornado, right? Um, these recurring patterns. And it, it, I think that there is consciousness built into the fabric of reality, that from a post-material view, what is primary is consciousness, by which I mean both information and love. Love is a mutative force. And that we see expression of this consciousness consciousness field in recurring patterns, um, which makes me think of you know, the very interesting area that you go in, moving between levels of expression with sound. Yeah. Now, I'm I have some questions about that. I agree with you. And I think like loop finding and pattern recognition is something that's always really been, I don't know if I've been attracted to it or it's been attracted to me, but um, it's always been something my whole life that I've noticed um, and been interested in. I actually found it hard to, to read whenever I was a kid because the negative space between the printed words 
I would see the the synchronization of the spacing between those on the page, and that would make the words vibrate. And so it was hard for me to focus on because all I could see was the patterns of space creating kind of a a type of field of, of energy. I know it may sound weird, but um, and then if you look Not at it at all, it's fantastic. Um, it's fantastic because the. Blank space is, of course, positive information, right? It's yes. not only words. Yes. Stunning that I would move on to be deeply inter- interested in Zen after after that <laughs> later in my life. Yeah, right. Um, and of course, the good news is that you can pick up some of the meaning in the book by holding it and intending into it. So you don't actually need to read every word. Absolutely. That's actually kind of a dream. Like I'd like to take John Cage's four minutes and 33 seconds of silence and just turn that into a book, just a book full of blank pages. You know, that's always been a nice idea. Yeah. (laughs) But, um, but yeah, you know, I've often, and just watched that and really enjoyed, and I feel like learned from, you know, as you say, uh, the, the, the bark of trees is similar to the canyon, or I often think about if you look at a bunch of trees flowing in the wind, you could also see that a coral reef acts the exact same way and so forth. You know, we have a lovely soft fern in our yard. And underneath this, I don't know, it's probably 50-foot fern, is tiny little moss that looks structurally identical to the fern. They aren't baby ferns, but they're moss of a very similar structure. So I, I just think that, you know, we're a family of life. We are, we have family resemblance. We have all the characteristics with fellow living beings that we have in our own families. And if we stand back, you know, and think about our own families, the exquisitely defined, you know, developed family has a cast of characters. There's no family in which personalities are identical. And I've often thought that the so-called differences, the so-called hiccups in families, the um, colorful personalities in families were our training to go out into the world, recognize through the process of family resemblance, other colorful characters and have the same love for them that we have for our sisters, our brothers, our great aunt, who's really quite difficult, our little nephew, who's wild as can be. If we can love the next little wild as can be or difficult elder, um, then we know everybody's our family. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And I've looked at that inversely uh, in your own personal development, because given that we are kind of this cast of characters within our family system, but also any type of kind of miniature life ecosystem that we all have, you know, we have the people we know at our profession, or in my case, it's just me. But then we have people who work in office, people who, you know, whatever, they have a group of friends, and you in their minds are this pattern creating identity structure that has kind of a firm boundary to some degree as a, a slow glacial pace of its change and evolution, one that is non-threatening. And if a person tries to kind of radically change their approach to the world or their form of expression, or even the way that they dress or look, um, oftentimes people will react to that unfavorably because not because necessarily of the individual, but because of their own reaction to the seeming uncontrollability and unpredictability that that introduces into their own, uh, kind of what I like to call the sitcom mentality of their cast of characters in their life. So they're kind of like, <laughs> Hey, you're, 
they're like, you're going, you're going off script here. That makes me uncomfortable because I'm on stage and I don't know what the next line should be now. And so, and really our liberation lies in improv, right? Absolutely. So, you know, that says to me, pick your environment with great reflection, pick your environment carefully. The scientists run twin studies. We look at twins raised together, twins raised apart, and we factor out the degree of similarity as a function of shared genes and shared environments. So, Temperament is about half inborn, half environmentally formed. And in, in the awakened brain, which I'm going to tell you more about in a moment, it turns out that our capacity for transcendent awareness, where Corey, I sense you spend a great deal of time, you inhabit this human capacity, this awakened brain, that is one third innate, but it is two thirds environmentally formed, which means we are all hardwired with the possibility. We all are given a brain capable of awakening, but whether or not we engage it, whether or not we cultivate that capacity for transcendent awareness is shaped by environment. But increasingly, as we grow older, environment is brought on by ourselves. We choose both our external environment, those with whom we work, those with whom we play, those with whom we love. And we also pick our internal environment. Do we meditate? Do we pray? Do we connect into the deep spirit in nature? So, you know, with puberty, puberty is sort of the bridge. There's a 50% increase in the heritable contribution, which means bring ready or not, there is a biological clock. And suddenly we hunger for connection and illumination and the unity. And we question what is the nature of reality and what is evil and what is good and who am I really in an ultimate sense. That's really the blast that sends us launching as young adults into the world as seekers. And what we do from there is in, to very large extent in our hands because how we choose to live our lives shapes our own brain with enormous impact starting, you know, late adolescence, emerging adulthood. The 22-year-old, choose wisely because you are making you. Now, what do you think the difference is between someone who, as you mentioned, has this uh, flash of awareness around their teenage years where they kind of start individuating and testing the world and figuring out, you know, where they fit and what things mean? Mm -hmm. What is the difference between someone who kind of quote unquote finds an answer or ascertains mm-hmm. a particular point of view and then agrees upon that as a kind of a, a rolling uh, standard for quote unquote what is versus someone who simply never stops peeling mm-hmm. the layers off and continues seeking their entire lives? One in a journey, one in a state of quest. And as you suggest so beautifully, quest is a stance. Um, you know, what's the answer today may not be the answer tomorrow, but it has to do with leaning into life as a great journey, an infinite opportunity for evolution and discovery. So you'll love this. Um, First of all, quest from the view of the brain is when we can perhaps ask a driving question with the so-called head, right? And get an answer from the so-called heart, which is to say, you know, use the front of the brain, if you will, to say, what is the significance of this synchronicity? What on earth is going on here? And then feel in the heart, perceive in a bottom-up way, sense in an intuitive form an answer. Um, This wedding of different forms of knowing, you, of course, know we're knowers in many forms. We have logic, awesome. We have empiricism, fantastic. My whole life has been as a scientist. And equally, actually more so, I count on 
intuition, mystical gifts, moments, not gifts at hominem, gifts that we all receive through the nature of being alive. Uh, you know, these are the multiple forms of knowing that are our birthright. And to the extent that we can ask a logical question and feel an intuitive answer or receive a mystical inspiration and discern then through logic, its significance and integration into our lives, we are embracing all of our forms of knowing. When we look at that way of life in the MRI, what we see is magnificent myelinated tracks, paved highways between regions of the brain. We are knowers who have integrated multiple forms of perception. That makes us more able to quest, live into life in a deep, deep way, see life for its both what might have been an implicit level now becomes to the fore, you know, the landscape of the spiritual reality. So much opens up to us when we use all with which we're endowed. So as a scientist, how do you define or dare I say quantify mystical? Mm. So, you know, scientists are terrible. And in fact, we should never even pretend to define things all told. But what scientists are very good at is identifying threads within the human experience that have enormous impact on the rest of our lives. So, for instance, when it comes to you know, my, my life's work is the study of spirituality through the lens of science and its impact on the rest of our lives. So the thread within spiritual life that changes all else is the capacity to be in a deep transcendent relationship with life. And some people call it God or Jesus, Hashem, some people say the spirit in life, the, the force in nature, but to be able to perceive, not just believe or cognit, you know, have a cognitive grip, but really see, feel, and know the presence of the transcendent relationship changes everything else in our lives because then we are in a dynamic relationship. We are in a dance. We are in a dialogue. We are in a dyadic, really a dialectic since you think about these things, with, with life. We're an emanation of creation and yet in dialogue with creation. That is a life full of surprises, magnificent doors open, unexpected things slam closed. The world is alive and we're alive with it. The second thread within lived human spirituality of tremendous significance is our ability to share that journey. Mm. You speak to one another, to hear one another, to witness. And that is what traditionally has been the Sangha, the Mingan, the fellowship. It, in my course at Columbia, I call it the journey group for just the reason of which we speak now. So the transcendent relationship and that it might be shared are our endowments. We are born with this capacity, but to the extent we realize that life is a bright open landscape with magnificent surprise. Beautiful, beautiful. And, and that makes me think you mentioned this uh, research number from before about that it is about a third of our proclivity for this is heritable. And then another two thirds is based upon you know environment and action and, and ultimately, I guess, some chance as well. It would explain an interesting correlation between those that don't foster that two thirds aspect of their lives yet have that, you know, some sense of a herited um, strong knowing and that the conflict between those two things pushing each other would create a really a deep sense of dissatisfaction and longing and kind of feeling of unfulfillment. 
Yes, yes. And, you know, that's what the 20th century did to many of us, that there was an intuitive, natural, you can see in people's eyes, you know, awareness of the transcendent, the sparkle, the leap of perception. You know, and many artists, you know, basically when the 20th century went cold on transcendent awareness and the sciences froze up and were very, very narrow, including most frigid of all the social sciences, it was the artists who kept the transcendent alive for our culture and foremost, the musicians. Mm -hmm. That is you, Corey. <laughs> yes. And that's so, it's always been just really mind boggling to me uh, why, at least in Western culture, there is this compulsion to think of everything in binary terms, right? Like it must be scientific materialism or it must be some type of, you know, spiritual uh, energy or path or something like that, where, you, you know, this resistance to allowing those things to not only exist side by side, but within and inside of each other. So, you know, finally, you know, science is a lens, as you suggest, we can point that lens at anything, but where we point it and the richness of our questions lives with the scientist. And there are tragic scientific vogues and limitations of scientism, which is certainly not the rigor or method of science, but really sort of the culture of fashionable questions. And in the 20th century, they didn't turn as a general rule. Scientists did not turn, rotate, pivot, and focus the lens on the impact of spirituality in the human life. But mm. now we are. Now we are. And when I started out in 97, 98, there weren't, you know, there weren't 20 articles, period, and none on the first two decades of our formation as human beings, and almost none on the relationship between spiritual awareness and recovery, renewal, regeneration, resilience when it comes to mental health and wellness. And now we have hundreds because the scientists opened their heart, mind, their intuition, their broad range of human awareness caught the wave of inspiration and then say, ah, yes, I can pose a question and sure, in a rigorous, methodical way, inquire into the answer. But the inspiration is what asks the question. The so-called hit on the head with the proverbial apple. And in fact, 70% of scientists who have made a meaningful contribution, whose work might be seen as offering a leap for their field. 70% of those scientists say that their best question came through a mystical experience, a dream, a synchronicity. They're aware that generating new vision is not the same as rolling that out through the method, the stepwise logical and empirical work of science. And then of course the process is iterated that insight through the rigor comes back to the imagination, to the mystical, round and round the interconnected brain. Mm -hmm. It's amazing how someone like Ramana Maharshi was doing just what you're talking about that's happened in the last few decades, a uh, hundred years ago. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. thousands of years ago too. People, yeah. You know, like Pythagoras, right? All right? So I think we really had a freeze on, basically we used a very small portion of our brain in the 20th century and it led to enormous suffering right one of the greatest costs i think was the illusion of separateness radical materialism as opposed to a unit of view that consciousness is in and through all of us and non-local right so radical materialism said that what happens to someone in chicago or la has nothing to do with what happens to someone in Sag saigon or shanghai or paris and that type of separate perspective led to 
a lot of war, a lot of harming others, thinking it wouldn't harm ourselves, harming others without feeling that pain, you know, unit of empathy, even psychology participated in illusion of separateness, that somehow to be empathic, the dominant theory held in the 20th century was to try to assume the shoes of another. That's a very splendid dissociative way of feeling, as opposed to unitively being one and hurting because they hurt, right? Mm -hmm. Having one pain. Have you ever looked into uh, or have you ever researched uh, Advaita Vedanta before? Tell me more. It's just it's a just a Hindu school of philosophy that basically refers to the notion that, you know, a Brahman or the one is kind of this emanating energy of consciousness that arises within each of us and our identities and, and the objective world even are kind of are these wallpaper structures of conditioning that don't really exist so much. It's basically kind of an inward facing version of objectivism in some way. Lovely. So we are sort of the frothy white caps of one big ocean. And we are exactly. Really ocean. So exactly. That is, I hope, where our current suffering might yield. You know, I, In the awakened brain, I show through the lens of science and then stories, people's own spiritual journeys and breaks into awareness that Depression is an invitation for awakening. And if we delve into the tunnel of depression and really engage in reflection, deeper alignment with the nature of reality, we come out the other side, awakened to a very bright landscape with magnificent surprise. And the next time trauma comes around, it's clear as day, we are 75% less likely to hit a major depression again. And if we really are rained on with hail. We are 90% protected. The harder things get, the more protected we are against a recurrence of major depression. That's because suffering is an invitation. It's a knock at the door to cross over the threshold into a much more illuminated way of knowing. Collectively, right now, half of the United States is depressed. This is our chance to deepen, to awaken, and step into the form of awareness that you were describing, that we are one, there's a unitive field, we are one ocean with many bright white caps. When we really take that in, and this is a really the chance of our lifetime, we will make different decisions. We will not make decisions based on radical separatism. We won't think that people don't suffer elsewhere, that you can make an, I mean, the entire medical community, it's not just in the past two years, has made animals suffer terribly. We didn't care as a scientific field that we caused suffering to bats, suffering to animals that, you know, feel that are parents, little mothers. I mean, it, it's horrific. Right? We've got to change how we live with fellow living beings every single second of our day professionally, personally, everywhere. And a unit of understanding, an awakened perspective is at our doorstep right now because we are collectively depressed. This could be our great wake up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I truly believe that you're right too. And, and that the last few years of everyone experiencing you know, the COVID quarantines and all of the you know historic social uh, equity conversations and, and activism along with the most tumultuous uh, election in American history had such an interesting compound effect on that is that the forced quarantine of everyone for a few years was 
a forced introspection because it made everyone really understand and start to think about these new things like, well, what is important in my life? Like, what do I think, you know, and oh, wow, how do I feel? And I am depressed. And everyone, since they were quarantined, they were speaking out about it online, which created a public conversation around mental health, which really normalized mental health and put us on this precipice for just incredible potential for this to be a blasting off point for people to really start growing and understanding themselves. Blasting off point is so wise. That is exactly what this is. You know, there are, as you know, a, a subset of cases when we're depressed where, you know, a little piece is broken or there's a chemical imbalance and we should take SSRIs. But at least two thirds of cases in regular times, and I would highly suspect more than that now, are developmental depressions where we've outgrown our old way of seeing things, where we no longer align and move with the deep rhythm of life because more is for us now. You know, there's a, um, almost like a, a teleology. We are, we are already in our depression. There's a force, a knowing force that we are to land forward into a more expanded sense of awareness. Um, depression is the invitation. It's the knock at the door, but the guest is already there trying to get through. This is our chance. This is absolutely our chance. And if we can work together, you know, show up for one another, hear each other's stories, have conversations like the ones you lead, Corey. I think the rising generation of 20-year-olds, of 30-year-olds already has an implicit awakened sense that we are one, we're interconnected. They naturally, you know, people in their 20s and 30s make friends at the level of consciousness, not at the shallow level of the bio body suit. You know, this is an awakened emerging generation and we're on the cusp of an awakened society. We're using our awakened brain de facto, but we've got to work together, give it language, give it direction. Absolutely. Yeah, you couldn't be more accurate. Um, now, I'm curious, just kind of in the beginning, when and how did you start making the connection between mental health and spirituality? You know, when I was starting out as an intern, I share this in the awakened brain. And, you know, looking back on it, it, it all makes sense now. But I, I was a new intern. I just got my PhD. I was on an inpatient unit in New York City. And it was not a place where people came to had insurance, but it wasn't the end of the road. It was just sort of your average urban inpatient unit. And I saw enormous suffering that was not being helped by the dominant model. And there was nothing wrong with the people on the unit. They cared. They gave it their all. They'd all been trained in what was, you know, the approach du jour. And it just wasn't helping. These patients came back two, three, four, some of them 10 times to the inpatient unit. And yet I saw, it was actually very interesting. I, this was in New York and this was, um, probably September or so, that the Jewish holidays, Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah rolled around. I'm Jewish. I, I looked around and I saw, you know, there were four, five, six Jewish patients. I said, oh, well, who's going to be, you know, what rabbis coming in here to help them? You know, Yom Kippur is a time of forgiveness. It's a time of renewal. It's a time of realigning ourselves with the sacred. What rabbi comes for the high holidays? And the answer was, oh, well, well no rabbi comes for the high holidays. And I looked at these people, you know, one woman, um, 
we'll call her Beth, was it was so full of pain. And she tied herself up in a little knot. She, you know, one arm wrapped around the other, hunched over in a little chair. And one guy was so explosive, you know, we'll call him, we'll call him Martin. He would just yell because he was in so much pain. He had to expiate it and throw it out of his system. And he'd yell across the room in a huge room full of 20 people. Everyone was in so much pain. And I thought, well, of everyone who is, it would seem, worthy and deserving of a Yom Kippur service, it's our sisters and brothers in pain right here on the inpatient unit. So, you know, not having had a day of training, but having once a year gone to Yom Kippur services, I said, well, I'll, I'll try to lead a service. And I showed up on Yom Kippur. And instead of wearing their, you know, overly revealing, degrading hospital gowns, right? These people were not medically ill. They were in a psychiatric unit. Every one of the Jews on the inpatient unit had dressed up. It was so moving, Corey, in their finest clothes. And they sat with dignity. You know, we were on the linoleum kitchen table. It could have been the most beautiful synagogue in the world. And as we started to pray the familiar prayers, you know, the man who would normally burst out and disrupt and expiate his rage was the one holding us together. And he sang with the rhythm of the beautiful songs he'd learned since he was a boy. And the woman who felt so unworthy, felt so guilty and ashamed of her very being, was the one to burst out, you know, everyone can be forgiven. I'd realized on Yom Kippur that we could ask, but I see now we can all, all of us, all of us are worthy of forgiveness. They had the diametrically equal and opposite realization of that from which they suffered. Hmm. Okay, that was not happening in therapy. And I imagine that if Judaism can do that, so can Christianity and Catholicism and spirituality without religion. That was a spiritual awakening. And what it did was it moved the occlusion of the ego from the brightness of their whole soul. I mean, they basically were a sun with an eclipse. They had a moon in front of them. And they, their brightness, and that is what I realized spirituality in that moment through one faith tradition, but spirituality in any faith tradition and spirituality independent of a faith tradition does. It illuminates our whole soul. It rejuvenates our awakened brain, captures the fullness, the infinity of us and the field of life. Mm, Psychotherapy minus that, I think, is iatrogenic harm. It's when you go to the hospital and you have a cold and you leave with TB. The hospital made you worse. Psychotherapy that disintegrates awakened awareness from human renewal and reflection and expression is splintering us. It is disintegrating us. I know you've mentioned the term awakened brain several times since we've been talking, but I wonder if you could just define that uh, for us real quickly so that we know exactly what you're talking about. So uh, scientists can only, well, clinical scientists, and, and I'm a clinical scientist, we can only speak to the impact of spirituality in the human life or the pathways into formation of a spiritual life. We are not equipped scientifically to speak onto the dimensions of the universe. We're not theologians, right? We only are effectively human scientists, right? So I use the term awakened awareness so that I stay tightly, if anything, conservatively. I don't overstep my bounds. Um, I stay in my lane. And my lane as a clinical scientist is to speak of the seat of awareness through which we have 
transcendent or infinite awareness. So I speak of that seat of awareness, the neural correlates through which we are awakened to a broader transcendent reality. I don't comment on the nature of the transcendent reality. I speak only to our awakening to it. Now, I, I have plenty of thoughts as a human being about the extensive reality, but I wanted in the awakened brain to play it tight, play, play, be very, very clear about what science has really discovered that is game-changing. And by being, if anything, understated, help us recognize our infinite potential. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're definitely wise to do that because you get as little resistance as possible from people who might just have reactions to you trying to define publicly what the, what quote unquote that is. Um, now, I'm curious, would you mind sharing uh, some of your take on what, what it is? Sure. Yeah. Do you want to go first? Oh, no. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm... I uh, am happy to, if you'd like me to, but yes, I'm, there's a conversation, right? I'm, I'm far more interested in hearing what you have to say than hearing what I already know. Well, okay. I'll, I'll say a bit, but I hope you'll jump in. Sure. Um, it's been my direct experience and I share in the awakened brain, my own journey through um, the break of attachment of ego control. Right. And it, for me, it was in the arena. I you know, had been a very, very, very hardworking extremely hardworking. I mean, I was passionate as a scientist. I was passionate in graduate school. I was passionate as a postdoc. I loved seeing the pattern in the numbers as we're talking about, Corey, the pattern so much that I would literally sleep on my floor so I could be close to the data and get on the floor <laughs> and run the numbers. Uh, and my poor husband, you know, we'd, <laughs> we'd be sitting at dinner and he'd slam the table and he'd say, are you thinking about a number again? You know, <laughs> it was all consuming. Um, and I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, so that said, um, I, I was very passionate about the pursuit of science. I was very passionate about um, having opportunity to make this my life's work. And somewhere around 30, my husband and I decided, you know, we'd really like to be parents. So, you know, we thought, well, you're healthy. I'm healthy, you know let's take a vacation. And we went somewhere in the Caribbean and came back and thought, oh, isn't that nice? We're going to be a family any day now. But that didn't happen. And, in, you know, months passed and it still didn't happen. So I went to a doctor around the corner and he said, oh, you're healthy. Oh, your husband's healthy. Y'all get pregnant. And we started, you know, level one, you know, then level two, then level three. And we still weren't conceiving. And I started to have this dreadful feeling that, we weren't going to conceive at all. And it was a sort of this haunting dread. I pushed it away at first. Um, but I, I had this feeling that we were in for some sort of long haul. And indeed, this turned out to be a five-year journey. We went to, you know, we ramped it up. We went to the best fellow, you know, in New York. And then we, he was good, but, you know, there's someone better in Boston. And we went to him. And then we went to the fellow in Philadelphia who invented in vitro using sea urchins and Wintol. And, you know, we, you know, as much as a scientist could do, I researched and identified those in vitro, you know, fertility doctors with the highest rates of conception and the most, in, and still, it still, still didn't take. And I really was getting the picture that this was not a problem of physiology. This was a far deeper question. This was a spiritual challenge. Um, I knew this in my heart, but I didn't really have the 
insight about what to do with this awareness. And so I was on a quest, as we've been talking about, to figure out the language, the method of moving in the spiritual realm. What is this about? And there was no you know, single book or single teacher where I was going to get the complete download. But there were helpers and healers along the way, and there were books that fell in my lap, and there were teachers who came along and gave just the right gift at just the right time. And on this sacred quest that we are all on, um, the carrot for me was becoming a parent. Um, I finally, you know, husband by my side, best doctor in the world for in vitro, lying side by side out of solidarity in a very nice hotel. We turned on the TV, you know, post in vitro, this time it's going to work, you know, best guy in the world, this time it's going to work. And what should come on the TV? This, you know, comfortable place, but one station and the TV's stuck. There's only one station. Can't go forward, can't go backwards. You got to watch this. It's a documentary. And it's a documentary of an orphan who lives in a garbage dump in Central America. And through translator, the orphan, who's probably about eight years old, says, you know, I don't care that I can't go to school. I don't care that I live in a garbage dump, but it hurts so much to not be loved that I sniff glue to make the pain go away. And in that moment, I realized what an egotistical fool I'd been that what makes a parent is love and commitment. And here was this little boy who wanted a mother out of love. I could have been his mother, but instead he was alone in pain sniffing glue. And I was miserable in a hotel on my, you know, umpteenth in vitro. It was a breakthrough. It was a synchronicity. And at that moment, I knew there was a child out there for us, our spiritual child. And the doors flew open and I was on my spiritual path, as we all have before us. But the depression, the pain, the agony was what finally led me to respond to the invitation, open the knock at the door, walk through and, and see this landscape and everything changed from there. And that's in the awakened brain. We all have these moments. It's a beautiful story. Um, I'm curious, what do you, how do you think about the fabric of kind of the ineffable fabric of everything that was moving along that entire experience for you. It was magnificent. It was, it was, you know, a road of profound suffering with even far greater miracles. You know, and it, um, you know, I'll just tell you a few more moments along the road because I think it brings forward, um, what I glimpse is part of the fabric of the spiritual reality, the sacred world in which we live, universe in which we live. Um, there were several times in which a very sacred presence came and said in this long road in which I was gradually chipping away at ego, right? Control, my life should look like this. Planfulness, we'll have a child now as if you get to decide as a human, on the formation of another living being, right? So it, it was really um, a radical, radical form of ego death. But as that process wore away at my ego, mystical, beautiful experiences that are there 
surrounding us um, were very apparent. And some were with fellow living beings and some were transcendent experiences. And I'll, I'll share one where, um, you know, a presence came and said, if it was a very strong presence. Um, I sat up in the middle of the night and space and time opened. So the sort of peaceful darkness of our room opened and there was this numinous, ecstatic opening. Um, and the presence, which was very strong and powerful, conveyed. Um, and again, it, it's it's very, very far from, you know, you hear in the way that you hear through your ear. It's like in the same way that you see through your mind's eye, you hear through your mind's ear. There was a clear communication, but there was no confusion with, you know, if I dropped a glass on the floor. It's a different level of perception. Um, and the communication was, if you were pregnant now, would you adopt? And being honest, I was still too much of an egomaniac that thought I was so smart and thought we were so cute and that our kids should be just like us. And I said, oh, um, I'm aware that that's a higher spiritual bar, but honestly, to a presence of this sacredness and intensity and seriousness, I said, I have to be honest, no, no. And I went further then down the path aligned with, you know, helpers and healers and fellow living beings. It's very, it's all in the, in the awakened brain, but I want to share here that in order to get to the point where I could be truly a loving parent marked by unconditional love, I witness for that child's own spiritual path, not making them into a little me. I needed to get rid of a lot of ego and this journey did it. The presence came back um, sometime later, and I had to be honest again. I said, you know, I've, I've come a long way, but no, no, I still wouldn't adopt. Well, finally, finally, I go off to visit the Lakota. Um, I've, I've long felt a connection with the Lakota. They are not far from where I was born as a child, making me wonder if there was a time perhaps in another incarnation where I, I was part of the community. I went to the Lakota. I went to the Anipi, the healing ceremony in the sweat lodge. And there in the sweat lodge, surrounded by other women, the men were in one Anipi, the women in another, the leader who identified herself as the medicine man's wife, asked each of us why we had come. And most women there said, I've come because my son, he's no longer coming home. I'm worried about his children. I'm worried, said the next woman. My son is 14. He's starting to use drugs. I don't know what will happen to him. We went all the way around the circle. And then they came to almost me, the person before me, who was my older cousin. I'm Lisa Jane. My cousin is Big Jane. And, you know, Corey, as a professor, 20 years, I talk for a living. But I had, I couldn't say a word. So my cousin speaks for me. And she says, I am Big Jane and this is Little Jane. And, you know, I'm a big mouth Columbia professor. I am Big Jane and here's silent Little Jane, right? She has come looking for her child. I'm wondering if we here can help her. And every woman in the Anipi looked right at me with total understanding and nodded and said, yes. And then we prayed and we prayed for each other and we prayed for us as a collective. It was sort of the superordinate, the we, the consciousness had, you know, the collective spirit and whoosh, sent it up. And Corey, you could see it again. 
with your mind's eye. You could see the collective spirit go up. And that night, we got a call. To this day, it just moves me deeply. We got a call from the other side of the earth. They said, you know, we're calling you from Russia. We found the Miller's child. You know, you had asked for X, Y, and Z. Well, this is the Miller's child. And this is a son, like all the other sons in the NEP. So it was clear to me that it was not through, you know, upratcheting the finest fertility doctors in the world that we became parents. We became parents when I joined the women in the Anipi and had a deep, deep spiritual connection where we prayed for each other, for life itself. It was the end of my egotism. Hmm. That's a really beautiful story. Thanks for sharing that. Um, how do you think about the alignment of synchronicities and noticing those more intensely in certain periods of your life. And they almost always relate to some type of um, other intelligence that doesn't necessarily, you know, as you were talking about, that doesn't necessarily inhabit your frontal lobe and, you know, an intelligence that we're all aware of. And we begin to become more aware of that and that swells up in volume. And at that point, we often begin to see more and more synchronicities and they begin to kind of start appearing. Um, what do you think about that phenomenon? Is that a, a thing? I, you know, I've, I've watched and experienced that many times in my life, particularly every important moment for me has been preceded and, and uh, post-rolled by that experience. Um, or every, should I say, every kind of um, journey shifting moment. Uh, do you think that that experience is one that is, that, that you can put yourself in a, in the circumstances to uh, engage with that more frequently? Or is this something that is just really beyond, um, the control, like trying to make the wind blow or something like that. But the key is to just have a sail up. I think that when we, consciousness is in and through and among us, right? We are emanations of consciousness. And yet we also are in dialogue with consciousness, right? It's a dialectic where like the ray of the sun, we're an ex expression of consciousness. And so too, we can sort of fold and turn upon ourselves and this gift of choice, this gift of attention, this gift of witness is very, very powerful. Maybe our most powerful opportunity is to engage consciousness. Um, so I, you know, what is the brain? Does the brain create thoughts? Well, sometimes does the brain detect thoughts like an antenna from the consciousness field? Well, that seems to make sense. Is the brain a reification or materialization of thought? Well, that sure makes sense too, because as we meditate more, expand our consciousness, we have synaptogenesis. And yet, can there be consciousness independent of the brain? Well, yes, because we know that from you know, experiences such as you know Bruce Grayson's work, where people are technically brain dead, but they're still aware, right? And we know that because very committed meditators and swamis will go into an MRI and the MRI is flat, but they're having a consciousness experience. So, you know, consciousness and matter have very rich 
relationship. Um, but it certainly is very, very, very um, much more, I, I guess the simplest way I would say is consciousness exists independent of matter, but can be re reified, reified into matter. Um, so that said, brought to this question that you raise of synchronicity, when we focus attention into the field of life that creates synchronicity, from which synchronicity emanates, then we are participating in that consciousness field. When we take, you know, through the vessel of our brain, focus attention and regard and witness synchronicity, then we dial in, We've, we participate in the consciousness field. And I think it amplifies exponentially, as you suggest, that it heats up and synchronicity becomes more apparent and we're more deeply aligned in this living symbol. And synchronicity is not a two-dimensional symbol. It is a vibrant, living, expressive symbol, like a dream. It shows where we're about to heel strike. It is, you know, a knock at the door. It is, you know, the, the grand curtains part for act one. We're being open. We're being invited in. That is quite an invitation. And when we accept it, it you know, turns up the volume and it turns up the lights and there's more pixels in life and we're more present and more a part of the consciousness field. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I know that whenever those things get so uh, consistent and absurd that I start laughing at them. Like they just start making me laugh. I, I know I've got my finger on the nerve cell of the divine, you know? Right. And that um, the sacred has joy and humor. It's a winking, laughing universe. Mm -hmm. Isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. Uh, uh, definitely. It's the laughter is certainly the most clear uh, spiritual language that we have. Um, Beautiful, right? I, uh, <laughs> the comedians, boy, they, they see a lot. Right? Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Um, so thinking about this from a perspective of kind of um, a bit more of a material perspective in some ways, looking at how, or to me, how you're talking that the act of being attuned to you know whatever the spiritual energy that one might inhabit, and as you noted, that could even be non-religious based or even non-Abrahamic religion um, type of, of yeah. Uh, spiritual practice. It's mainly a, you know, a pursuit of the, the inner life and an awareness of, you know, the thing within, right? The energy, the light, the, the in life force, the source, whatever you want to, whatever mouth sound you want to slap across that, that uh, phenomenon. Um, could we kind of add some other scaffolding to that and say maybe underneath the lift the hood and the gears of what's really going on if one um, commits himself to having that type of experience or, or practice or mentality be a part of their life, is that not essentially creating an intentional life script of meaning, fulfillment, and acceptance of the uncontrollable in some ways? Mm, beautiful. So, Corey, beautiful. So, you know, in the awakened brain, I talk about the circuits in our brain that we can choose to engage. You know, we invited young adults 18 through 25 into the lab, and we said, tell us a time you were really stressed out. And the stressed out story started with, I've got to have, or I've got to get, or she's got to say yes, or he's got to give me. You know, it was, they were about control. And in particular, chasing after that, which was just outside our fingertips. I've got to get into UCLA. I've got to get that job at the bank. I've 
got to get that girl. I've got to, got to, got And when we tell that story, which is in our air and water, you know, we have poison in the groundwater, we have poison in the air, and we have poison in our culture. That is a poisonous thought, which runs in our brain are the addiction networks. That is an addictive stance. And in fact, my colleague at Yale Medical School with whom I was doing this study has spent his whole life on behavioral addictions. He said, wow, that is the very same circuit, the insula, the striatum, that we see whether we're talking about addicted to alcohol, cocaine, pornography, the internet, it doesn't matter what the object of addiction is, I've got to have it. Boy, that that is quite a temptation. It's all over the place. I've got to have it. But we can put our hand on the gear shift, as you say, use our intention and shift out of the I've got to have it addicted narrative, whether it's I've got to have woman, man, job, money, whatever it is. And instead, tell me the story where you didn't get what you want and you weren't getting what you wanted. But then you felt a deep connection to, you might say, the universe or the presence of God. You felt a deep oneness with the deeper nature of life and what happened next. And the story changes. I'm walking down the street. I'd just been turned down to four out of seven medical schools. I thought, I'm not going to get anywhere. I'm not going to be a doctor. But then I saw light in the leaves, and I knew I would be a healer in the way that God had intended for me. Or then by the Gulf of Mexico, I'm looking over the water and I know, of course, life has meaning. Or then sitting by my grandparents at Thanksgiving, I know that I have a home on earth and I will always belong. And then I realized, and then I realized drops the addiction network. We release the insulin striatum. And what comes online instead is our innate capacity for deep perception. And if I may, can I quickly spell out what that looks like? Oh, please, lay it out. Great. Okay, so our awakened brain has four components. The first, and only the first, is shared with mindfulness. We get present, right? We disengage the default mode network. We get present. We stop thinking about, you know, is the check going to clear? And did I do a good job? And does she like me? We just get present. The next loop, as we cross from getting present into a state of awakening, is that the bonding network comes up online. So just as when we were young children, we were held in the arms of our parents or grandparents or caregiver, we feel and know that life itself is holding, that there's something in the deep nature of life that makes us buoyant and loved. The third dimension is that the parietal, which puts in and out hard boundaries, allows us to perceive that we are both magnificently diverse and you're all zipped up in your bio bodysuit and I am in mine, but we share a deep common seat of experience. And in fact, that's not just human experience. We share it with all life and all being. So the capacity to feel the deep oneness at once alongside awareness of distinction, that we're distinct and diverse, wonderfully unique and one unitive. That is the parietal. And then the fourth dimension of awakened awareness is that we go from the driving, top-down, achievement-oriented, got to get out the red door, tactical, strategic. And at times we do need this, but it is limited and certainly insufficient on its own. Because one day, got to get out the red door, got to get out the red door, got to get up, up, up the ladder at work, got to get into this school, got to get into that neighborhood, got to get accepted in this way. That I got to remember from 
door number one is foiled. That is not the nature of reality. That is the ego, the driving ego, just like my quest to control becoming a parent. In a state of awakened awareness, we release the top-down dorsal attention network and instead avail ourselves of the bottom-up ventral attention network and boom, the field of perception is infinitely broader, far more information. And many people say the right answer pops. Whoa, way over there. I mean, 194 degrees turn is the yellow door and it is wide open. And my, it is even better for me and even better for everyone. So the sort of non-linear, non-discursive, but boom, you know, wow, creates a felt sense of guidance. So we see, feel, and know in a state of awakened awareness that we are loved, held, guided, and never alone. That's not a belief. That is a perception. We are hardwired. We are built to be able to perceive using our awakened brain, this deeper nature. It goes from being the implicate order to being at the fore, the unit of loving nature. We are able to perceive using our awakened brain. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And I think all of that, what you described is really true. You know, I've, I've personally just lived through all of that over the last 20 years and you described it uh, really well, all those different chapters. It's wonderful. Wonderful. Um, that's whenever I have that experience of see, feel, and know. Love, oh, sure. Love. Yeah. Especially that's whenever my idol became a tree <laughs> instead of other people. <laughs> Yes. Would you share a bit about that? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, probably about, uh, I don't know, a, a little over 10 years ago, I was, you know, I've been um, chewing on and, and ingesting these things for um, uh, well over 20 years. And about yeah, a little over 10 years ago, I was at a place where I, I thought I was getting somewhere, which I always feel that way. I, today, I feel like I'm just finally starting to really understand all this stuff, <laughs> um, which I think is a good sign. But um, back back then... Uh, which is true. Mm-hmm. Which is true. Right. It's, it's evolution. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, spe- particularly given the fluid nature of experience, one can't ever have a solid understanding. And then, of course, through time, the map of your perception... Uh, increases and the map of your own awareness expands and therefore you have more correlative information to triangulate prior engage with bits of knowledge and so they turn into these beautiful little gems with infinite entry points in them if you're open enough to allow yourself to see them um but anyway i was thinking about uh this experience and i thought i was getting to where you were talking about and at that time, I was doing a lot of like trying to charge up, you know, positive energy inside myself and kind of share it with other people. Right. And just in the sense of like, I want to be just a positive, like lit up force in the world and all with good intentions, you know, and as I'm sure, you know, uh, the path of self-understanding is just it's it's literally like you know being on a, a thousand story tall building where you think oh I broke through my ego great and they go hold on a second I broke through another layer oh there's another layer and another and another um, and so anyway I one day I noticed you know for example I was in this coffee shop and uh, I went up to the barista and ordered my thing and did the whole thing of whenever I would interact with anybody I would kind of vibe up this 
this energy and, and shoot that electricity out of the eyes to give them a little bit of a, the intent is give them this feeling of just kind of warmth and goodness. Uh, and just, you know, that, that wordless sense of acceptance and positivity that you is so nice to feel from people. And I realized, uh, after doing that for several years as a practice, I realized in that moment in the coffee shop that that was kind of the most uh, egoic thing I could be doing because I wasn't doing that only to make them feel good, but I was doing it to watch them watch me do that for them and making myself the object of attention and making myself the object of the otherness and creating separation through that. So basically it's a very nuanced egoic spiritual hierarchy that's created in that. Like if you're the one casting light, the other person has to be the one receiving it. It can't be the other way in, in that context. And I realized like, oh, that's the, the key is to be like a, uh, a screen on a window that's underwater, right? So you're not charging up this thing. You're not trying to blast people with positivity. You simply completely let go and allow that feeling that we all know but can't really put words to just flow through you so you're the screen underwater immersed in that because to to believe that that feeling only exists within you temporarily uh is of course just a a delusion it's in everything all the time and it is most powerful whenever it is the least formulated and in that moment of realizing that I looked over and saw a tree and I was like, that tree is crushing it. It is yeah. like doing the exact same thing. Yeah. That's the answer. And so I just started, you know, that was whenever my idol became a tree. Mm. Wow. Wow. I'm taking that in. Wow. Aren't they, they're so generous trees. You know, I, I certainly they create oxygen and all that, but they, I think they are sort of the equivalent of the brain around the earth that holds consciousness. Yeah. And they just are there. They, they are the example. Of, they're basically just Tao and perfection, right? They are, they mm -hmm. exist without trying to draw your attention to them. They're just doing their thing. They're weathering constantly. They're always losing their leaves and regrowing leaves, which means they're in a constant state of like rebirth and shedding their skin and reemergence. And uh, they're, you know, the steady, strong, just presence of organic life that is aware and moves and relates to the flow of nature without trying to get into the way of it or being anything other than exactly what it is at any given moment. I experienced trees as knowers and ancestors. Um, you know, I, I met a Cherokee woman once. It was so interesting. She came up and shared her story. She said, I want you to know this. She said, when I was young, my, my mother was addicted and my dad had left us. But my grandmother, she loved me. I mean, she loved me. And we were very, very close. I'd run from the bus each day to come home to my grandma. And we'd sit at the table and she'd make me a snack. And we'd talk about the day. And she just listened to every word I said. But then when I was 13, she died. And I had no one. And the loneliness was insurmountable. But I found a tree. And she said it was this huge, huge oak tree. And I climbed up into this oak tree, 13. It's not like she was six, you know. And I, every day I'd come home and I'd climb up into the tree. And, you know, that tree raised me. 
That makes total sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Beautiful. Beautiful. And what's so crazy is it will, if it's still there, it'll probably be there longer than you're here, you know, which yeah. is another interesting thing about them. Um, okay. Before we wrap up, I have one uh, curious alternate point of view, or some might say kind of a, a challenging point of view on uh, your research. Uh-huh. And so looking at a strong connection of spiritual inner life with a direct correlation of positive mental health and just someone who is well-adjusted, lacking an ego, open with fluid, refined perception and so forth. Um, how does that square with, uh, let's look at something like the Westboro Baptist church. You know, they have r- stronger beliefs than a lot of Buddhist monks, but they're not exactly brimming with goodwill and positivity or what I would say is a well-adjusted mental health um, how does that happen, uh, given the research that you've done? Okay, great. So you're—I don't happen to know that group, so I'm not going to, you know, comment on that group per se. But stepping way, way back to the broader question, spirituality and religion are two different things. Every single one of us is born with an innate capacity for spiritual awareness, which I focus on as a clinical scientist by speaking of awakened awareness, the capacity to see, feel, and know that in the deep structure of life, we are loved, held, guided, and never alone. And to share that, which means to show up for one another in such a way as to be loving, holding, guiding, and never leave each other to feel alone, to be part players in that symphony of love, to be players in the symphony of the consciousness field. So we are all born with that. That is our birthright. Religion is environmentally transmitted. It is not heritable. So religion is a gift of our ancestors shared by community. It contains uh, teachings and practices and texts, and it is perhaps an embrace of our spiritual core. In the United States, about two-thirds of people say, I am spiritual and I am religious. My deep spirituality is held in my faith tradition. And about 30% of millennials and fewer with each older generation will say, I am spiritual, but I'm not religious. My deep spiritual experience is held in nature, in music, in art, in relationship. So spirituality is our innate capacity to perceive the sacred universe and share that and be that for one another. And religion is how that might be cultivated or embraced or taught or built. Okay. So having made that distinction, we've done another number of studies as have other labs using primarily epidemiology, looking at patterns among people. And what we find is that when there is the deep engagement of the spiritual or spiritual awareness, people feel connected to the transcendent and they see the presence of God or the higher power or the sacred force of life or goodness in one another, right? So uh, it's very interesting of all the correlates of, of spiritual practice, the one that is most closely, most pervasively associated with the spiritual brain is love of neighbor, to see the sacred in one another, to see God in the homeless guy to see spirit in the person you're really angry at. That is a spiritual, I call it relational spirituality. Okay, let's get to your question. That's the backdrop. So 
when we looked at young adults who were raised in such a way as to have a very um, strict and rigid adherence to creed, if they also had an authentic, deep spiritual connection, they did really well. What won the day was the deep spiritual connection with or without religion. But if we saw young adults who had were raised with a rigid, tight adherence to creed, but had not been helped, remember two-thirds environmental, had not been helped to cultivate their own awakened brain, had not been helped to cultivate a transcendent connection, they only had the rules and they only had pretty harsh punitive rules, then those young adults were actually at risk. Um, having crossed the thin line of breaking a rule once, there was really no net, and they would oftentimes, having made one bad choice, downward spiral to addiction, to heavy use of substances, um, having crossed the thin line of dating or been intimate with someone, they would end up feeling out of control and end up in an unwanted situation. So rules alone um, Rules without the rich cultivation of the spiritual relationship didn't help kids at all, and in some cases put them at risk. But a deep spiritual relationship on its own in a faith tradition that is practiced in such a way as to support that spiritual core, you know, with or without religion, when there's a strong spiritual core, a young adult does well. But when you have rigidity minus the felt relationship, minus a personal God, minus a personal connection to spirit, minus a felt sense of being one with life, that child is in a very brittle and vulnerable place. Mm-hmm. That makes total sense. And Westboro Baptist Church, they're the group that you know pickets funerals and things like that, which is why I chose them as a, an example. What I hear you saying, and this is really interesting, is that you know, as you noted, it, surveys from people. Uh, under the age of 35 or 40 seem to be really emerging uh, as identifying as people who are, you know, have spirituality without religion. And it sounds to me that this is an interesting factor if you find religious groups that are outwardly and publicly engaging or privately, but you wouldn't know otherwise, uh, in, you know, negative type of behaviors such as that, that it is an indicator that they indeed have religion without spirituality. Spirituality is inherently loving. Spirituality is, we show up for one another in such a way as to make everyone feel loved, guided, held, and never alone. That is our inheritance. That is the spiritual brain. That is our awakened brain. You know, it's, it's very important, I think, Corey, what you're onto, which is, you know, spiritual emergence happens in every young adult, whether or not they know it's coming, whether or not we've told them it's coming. And it happens again at midlife, you know, crossing the bridge from, you know, being sort of concerned with making our way in the world to assuming the mantle of caring for the whole world at midlife. And this should be front and center of what people find most riveting and care most about in their own lives. It should be at the center of a discussion at a dinner party and a valid and important way through which we make a decision, an awakened decision in a boardroom or a newsroom or a university. This is our finest form of being. This is our strongest form of decision-making. It's our most innovative, creative path forward. We've got to use our awakened brain to make our new awakened society right now, right now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
And, and I think we're on the cusp. I do. I really think we're there. Um, the old way just doesn't work. And people are hungry to be more loving, to say the thing that maybe, you know, 20 years ago, they might've felt embarrassed or sheepish to say, but say, you know, I've missed you so much in these 18 months, you know, your sparkly eyes, I've, I've missed your humor. I just love seeing you. It lifts my heart up give each other the love that is really who we are. Mm-hmm. I'm not religious, but amen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's a sacred with or without religion. Yeah. We are one another is spiritual. We are relationships are spiritual events. Mm-hmm. All right, Lisa. Well, this has been uh, a really great chat and thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, talking about your book and all of your research. I think that you're doing uh, great work and just contributing to this important next steps and our uh, evolution as human beings in this universe. Corey, thank you for creating a spiritually aware discussion that people by the thousands can join. You know, I've been through your many, many different podcasts, and I I think that you're leading the type of conversation that needs to become our new public square. Mm, Thank you so much. I I really align with you in that I have the same passion for uh, the research and the things you study, which is why I thought, hey, I should talk about this for a living. <laughs> That'd be a good way to, to, to do yes. it. <laughs> and, and, and create the public square for the ne- We're about to heal strike into a very volatile world. And the way of being in that world is the way of being that you sustain in your podcast where the strike foot, the front foot is spiritual awareness. We, this is an awakened discussion you host. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you uh, giving us your time today. Thank you. Thank you.